What am I going to do now? It's a question many of us have asked at some point. It can mean a lot of things. At some point, this question often marks a transition, a turn of a page, the close of a chapter in your life. What am I going to do now? With it, anticipation, sometimes fear, loss, grief, a number of other emotions. Think of the end of a job. Think of closing that chapter in school. Think of moving out. What am I going to do now? For some of you, think of that first time your spouse left for deployment and you locked the doors to what felt like an empty home that night. What am I going to do now? My empty nesters. That time your youngest finally moved out. It's official. And where some excitement perhaps might be there to turn that bedroom into a home gym or office, the tone of the home has changed and perhaps feels a little bit unfamiliar. What am I going to do now? I could go on and on and on. I got an email from someone who recently lost a spouse from first service who's been asking that question. And when we find ourselves, no matter the circumstance, asking that question, one of the truths that we want to push from our head down into our hearts, and it oftentimes takes prayer and community and sometimes fasting and just is the reality that God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. This is the tension we get in the text today of Acts chapter one. As we continue in our series, we're calling New Beginnings. You see, the disciples have spent three years with Jesus. And Jesus is our focal point, right? Jesus is the center of everything that we do. You're new to the church, new to the Bible. Jesus came and, I mean, he launched what has become the most dynamic and diverse movement in the history of humanity. He did it without lifting a sword. He did it without calling people to battle. He did it. He amassed a following such as what we have today without YouTube or TikTok or Instagram. It's pretty epic. His teaching for centuries has been worth learning. His life worth modeling. His death had a strategy behind it, namely that when he went to the cross, it was to satisfy the justice of a holy God so that wrath would fall on him instead of sinful humanity for those who would entrust their life to Jesus. His resurrection was victorious, so that for those who entrust their life to Jesus, you, you get the eternity that God has written on your heart in reality because of what he purchased on your behalf. And so in Acts chapter one, we get the tension of this epic loss. The disciples had Jesus who radically upturned their life over the course of three years. And he's been doing it to people ever since, by the way. And now Jesus departs physically and they're left in the what comes next. I could just imagine that thought crossing their minds. What do we do now? Acts chapter one, verse four, if you have your Bibles, that's where we are. While he, talking about Jesus, was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. I, I, I love, he reminds them, he said it multiple times. He's saying it again, just, this is the thing I said, because sometimes people need reminders before they sink in. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. We're going to skip down to verse 12. 
They have an exchange. Jesus goes into heaven, and we're fast-forwarding ahead of that. We'll come back to, to, to that scene in a moment. But in verse 12, what do they do? What do they do after this exchange, after Jesus leaves? Verse 12, then they return to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, Sabbath day journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Have four kind of points that we're going to go through over the course of this morning, and they're going to get progressively shorter, so the first one's going to be the longest, so you'll be home for lunch. They're not all going to be, what will what, what we get in point one? But wrapping our minds around this idea that God knows what he's doing, and what does it look like to live and respond in the midst of doubt and question marks and challenges in this world, living in light of the fact that, yes, he knows what he's doing. And the first point has to do with prayer. We're talking about prayer. Sometimes people ask, and I've had these conversations, it's fun to think about, you know, what if Jesus, instead of coming in the first century, what if he had come today? What would that have looked like in the 21st century? And you hear that, and I think you come across this kind of scene, and I'll tell you, you take a group of Americans, a giant group of Americans, and Jesus tells them, hey, I'm sending the Holy Spirit in a few days, and then you put them in a room. How long does it take before this comes out? Think about it. How many minutes? You just imagine one of them saying, hey, guys, we're supposed to be praying. And someone's like, he already said the Holy Spirit's coming. What are we praying for? He said it's coming. That, that's us being practical, by the way. That's us being practical. We have a waiting problem. We have a waiting problem. And I look here, and what I see is a group of people waiting really well. We're going to get back to them in a moment. I want to talk about us for a second. Harvard Business Review 2020 put, put this out there, estimating roughly 37 billion hours are spent by Americans waiting in line every year. 37 billion hours, okay? 69% of people surveyed say that waiting in line stirs negative feelings, including annoyance, boredom, frustration, or impatience. 75% of people report having left a store without purchasing the thing they went all the way to the store to buy because they were done waiting in line. All right, now let's talk about being on hold. Annoyance, tens, and I mean... I don't know how they studied this, but, you know, I got this from academics. Annoyance sets in on average after being on hold for three minutes and 30 se seconds. Some people begin to feel annoyed. Some of you are like, that's way longer than it takes me to feel annoyed. The average person will hang up when on hold at the 10 minute and 54 second mark. Think about this for a second. God told Israel, you're going to be in Egypt 400 years. And then Abraham, okay, this is back before, Abraham, modern lifetime. I made you a promise, modern lifetime before I give you the son that I promised you. Jesus says, hey, I got Holy Spirit coming. Go, it's gonna be a few days. We get upset after three and a half minutes on the phone. It wasn't long ago in which when you had to get a hold of your bank, you made a day trip out of it. 
What are you doing on Friday? Oh, I got to go into town to talk to the bank. All right, enjoy the walk. That was your day. Three and a half minutes. We got a waiting problem. What did the disciples do with their waiting time? This is where I felt convicted going through this text. They made waiting time into praying time. I want you to think about this in your life. Just imagine what this would look like for you. If when you were waiting in line, if the longer you spent waiting meant the longer you spent praying. Sitting in your car, picking up your kid from school or a sports practice or an instrument practice, waiting was praying. What if? What if in your home when you finished a task and you weren't quite sure what you were going to do next, that that in between was occupied by prayer? What if when you crawled into bed at the end of the night and you're waiting for your spouse to wash up to crawl into bed, that that waiting time was praying time? A few weeks ago, uh, Jen Wilkin gave a talk. She's an author and speaker. And uh, she gave a talk in which she kind of addressed the fact that Americans self-medicate their waiting. It's not something we like to have, so we self-medicate. And we self-medicate our waiting with screens. Now, I was doubly kind of convicted because I heard another sermon by a guy named David Platt. He's a pastor. And talking about prayer. And so here I'm talking to someone talking about self-medicating with waiting. And then he's talking about prayer and felt convicted. So two weeks now I've been doing a personal experiment that I'm going to invite you to join me in. Most of you aren't going to like it. Okay. But here's the experiment. I realized that when I'm waiting as a reflex, I pull out my phone and I have two or three apps that I'll just default into. Muscle memory, that's it, that's it. There's zero intentionality going into it. And so I made the decision that, and I didn't stop using the apps, you'll get to it in a second, but I made the decision, I deleted Facebook and I deleted Instagram, that was easy, those are more work than fun. YouTube, there's a lot of informational stuff on YouTube that occupies a lot of my time. Deleted YouTube and then the hardest one, guys, the news. I deleted the news. And what I, for some of you, that's really easy, all right? And then what I did is when I need to use one, I download it, I use it, and I delete it. And what I did is I created friction to be entertained. I made it more difficult to be entertained in order to make it more easy to pray. Because this is what's happened since. I was in line at Dollar Tree, and this way I, I pulled out, just in line, I pulled out my phone, downswiped, because the, so that the news icon would pop up. So like I'm in line, I'm gonna check out the news, and I downswiped, and it wasn't there. What do you do? I don't have something to look at in public while I'm waiting. I prayed, I prayed. And for me, the last two weeks, that's been my experiment. And I haven't stopped using YouTube or the news or Instagram or Facebook. But what I've tried to do is make prayer easy and make entertainment more difficult. Where are you medicating your waiting? Do you have apps on your phone that make it really clear that your empty moments don't belong to God, they belong to a screen? Join me in the experiment. As a parent, this hit especially hard 
one of the most annoying things to hear as a parent is, I'm bored. Two years ago, I started responding to my children almost the same way every single time, and it took six months, and they stopped saying it. But I started saying, it's my job to make sure you're bored. If you're not bored, I'm being a bad dad. So I would tell them every time. And I remember watching an old Disney movie with them, and one of the dads in the Disney movie said, oh, I'm bored. And my son looked, he's like, Dad, he's an adult. How come he doesn't know boredom's a good thing? Dr. Erin Westgate, psychology professor, University of Florida, this is all her research. You know, kids that are allowed to be bored are more creative, they're better problem solvers, they're more motivated to do fulfilling things, and those are just worldly, part of worldly research. What about the spiritual stuff? My gravest concern around this category is that we medicate our children's boredom and we model it as well. We ingrain the habit that empty moments don't belong to God. They belong to this screen. Every kid is different. We have screens in my house and we use them. This will look different in every home. But part of my job is to teach my kid that waiting time can be praying time. And when we pray, we pray like God knows what he's doing. The disciples had to wait for days. What did they do? They continually prayed. And you may say, Zach, I pray constantly. I'm memorizing scripture. I'm doing a Bible study every single day. Okay, I'm not talking to you. Leave the apps on your phone. If you're praying too much, leave the apps on your phone. If that's not your problem, do something. Send me an email. Let me know. We're in it together. It's my experiment too. Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 62, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence for my hope is from him. Waiting is a good thing. Waiting time. Let's make more of it praying time. Time to rewind. Back to Acts 1 verse 6. Their exchange with Jesus before he goes up. He says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Second thing. Talk about spreading the gospel like God knows what he's doing. First, I want to point out the power that they were receiving because the power they're getting is from the Holy Spirit. This is the same Holy Spirit promised to believers in other parts of the Bible. Holy Spirit by name is only mentioned three times in the Old Testament, but it's mentioned a ton in the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit comes to indwell God's people. And so Romans 5, 5, this, this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Ephesians 1, 13, in him you were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. When what? You heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, this is the Holy Spirit that they received. It is the Holy Spirit that is promised to us. It comes with power. It equips us to share God's truth so that we do so not in our own capacity, but equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit. But there's something else here in this text that I want to point out because we got some crazy noise on this that's been going on literally since just a few centuries after Jesus. And that has to do with the return of Jesus. Jesus wants you to know more about your mission than his return. 
Jesus wants you to know, and I would add care more about your mission, okay, than the timing of his return. And for years, and you, there's a whole Wikipedia page that tracks like dozens of these. You go, look, Jesus' return predicted. All of these people that just get, so when you hear a televangelist, when you hear someone on YouTube, when you hear, when you read a blog and someone predicting, hey, guys, it's so clear. If you read every 15th letter backwards, starting in Acts 14, August 14th, 2047, Jesus is coming back. No, unsubscribe. What does Jesus say when they say, hey, this whole Israel thing, like when, when is Israel gonna be restored? That's the wanted to know, that was what the Messiah came to do. When is Israel, when is Rome gonna be done? When is Israel gonna be restored? Don't worry about that timing, it's not, not, it's not on you. What does Jesus tell them to do? Be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. That's our blueprint, by the way, as a church for our missions. And Gary mentioned it last week. He kind of dipped into my text a little bit. But for us to care about our community and then to care about Connecticut and then to care about New England and then beyond, as we think about widening circles of missions, this is our blueprint. So I have some stats for you guys, some statistics. Connecticut, the last time a survey this large in the tens of thousands was done was 2015. I know eight years is a long time. Uh, 2015, Connecticut residents ranked 41st in the nation in regular church attendance. Okay. Now that's not the top 41. That would put them in the bottom 10, just so we're tracking here. Only nine states attended church more than Connecticut. The state had plenty of company for other New England neighbors. The bottom four slots were occupied by New England states. Vermont, 50th. New Hampshire, 49th. Maine, 48th. Massachusetts, 47th. That's where we live. The religiously unaffiliated, also known as the nuns, N-O-N-E, not N-U-N, the nuns, in 2006 was roughly 16% of the U.S. population. In 2018, it had ballooned up to 26% of the U.S. population, but it actually ticked down in 2020 to 23%. What happened in 2020 that would make people all of a sudden cry out to God more? Something. Interestingly, the Sunday after 9-11 was one of the highest attended church Sundays in our country. Why? Because when things get hard, people realize they need something more than what they can provide. But unfortunately, it did not last. The religiously unaffiliated are now at an all-time high, roughly 26.8%. Think of the globe. According to teamexpansion.org, we have just shy of 8 billion people in the world. They gave a more precise number with roughly 17,400 people groups. Out of the 17,400 people groups, 7,400 are unreached peoples. I heard a pastor once say, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. This is why we are missional in the spheres of influence where we find ourselves. This is why we give for missions outside of the spheres of influence that we find ourselves in. So that the gospel will be proclaimed so the people would meet Jesus. And we can't let the interesting things, okay? 
When is Jesus coming? When is Israel going to be restored? Those are fun to talk about. They shouldn't distract us from the important thing. Go be a witness. Now, we overcomplicate it. I'm going to give you one super practical way you can do this. Super practical. Especially since next year is an election year. Okay? Someone asks you, how are you? Really easy response. God's doing good things in my life. You didn't just say, fine, good. You pointed them to God. God's doing good things in my life. Now, they may give you a puzzled look that makes it clear they're curious what, but they may actually ask you, who knows how often. What do you mean? To which you can say, man, I used to be so stressed out about politics in this country. Like this season just used to wind me up. I used to look at what's happened in Russia and Ukraine and Israel, and it used to make me so afraid. But right now, I just have a sense of peace. And God's just given me peace. Romans 8 says that to set the mind on flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You show someone life and peace, that's something that's attractive to the world. You don't got to be an archaeologist, a scientist, a philosopher to, to tell someone that God's given you peace in a tumultuous world. Go be a witness. Be a witness. Share the gospel like God knows what he's doing. Continuing on. Acts 1 verse 9 through 11. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. He said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Now, while we shouldn't obsess over the timing of Jesus's return, we can obsess over the fact that he is returning. There's a difference. And when we do, we find that we can have hope like God knows what he's doing. We want to anchor ourselves in the reality that he is actually coming back. And when he is coming back, he will be accompanied by three things. And we see those three things in Revelation 11, verses 15 through 18. It says, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. This is this kingdom becoming his kingdom. And he will reign forever and ever. That's the first thing. When Jesus comes back, he's going to reign 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who, who is and who was because you've taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. Second thing, wrath for the wicked. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, and to those who fear your name, both small and great. Third thing, reward. When Jesus comes back, it will be for him to reign. It will be for wrath to meet the wicked and for the faithful to meet their reward. Reign, wrath, reward. And in each of these things, we can actually have hope. The fact that he's going to reign. When I think about the hard or difficult circumstances that I find myself in kind of navigating in this life, anchoring myself to the fact that Jesus is coming back and that he knows what he's doing. My circumstances don't have to define my identity. They don't have to dominate my peace. They don't have to deter my mission. Why? Because he's coming back and he knows what he's doing. That's where my hope is. 
The wicked will face wrath, which means I don't have to carry the burden of revenge. I don't have to carry the burden of vengeance because I worship a just God who will deal justly with the world. Because he knows what he's doing. Finally, when I'm tempted to be so self-focused, when I'm tempted to spend all my money on my own glory and comfort and vanity and entertainment, when I'm tempted to not look outward, but to look inward, I remember the faithful receive their reward. And God says that the good deeds you do are stored up as treasure in heaven and that your generosity is stored up as just treasure in heaven. And so we remember, we have hope in the fact that the stuff that we're doing not only serves God in the present, but stores a treasure for us in eternity as we live sacrificially. And we can have hope because he knows what he's doing. The angel made it clear. Jesus is coming back. Don't hang around. Go do what he told you to do. He's coming back. Finally, we're going to fast forward to the end of, end of Acts chapter 1. And I realize, you know, kind of a strange thought. I wonder how long, how many decades it will be where the word fast forward becomes a forward, uh, foreign concept to people. Young people are growing up fast forward is double clicking YouTube on the right side. That's fast forward. There's no sounds or like screen interruptions involved. All right. Sorry, that's a tangent. That's a tangent. We're going to focus. Verse 23. So Jesus leaves. They pray. And they need to replace Judas who killed himself. Who, the Judas who betrayed Jesus. And so... They're praying. They need to make a replacement. And so we find ourselves in verse 23, them looking to find a replacement so that they can have 12 apostles. Verse 23. So they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice. Let me just say, I'm, I'm glad we don't have to introduce ourselves with three names today. My name is Zach, called Pastor Stevens, also known as Reverend Zachary. No one calls me Reverend Zachary, by the way. No one calls me that. So there's him and then Matthias. I mean, poor guy. He only gets one name. So they prayed. You, Lord, know everyone's heart. Show which of these two you have chosen to take place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. Just a quick note. They make it clear earlier in the text that they were trying to find someone who would join them as witnesses to the resurrection. Why? Because apostles who had apostolic authority were witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. Paul writes in Ephesians that the apostles and prophets of the early church were the foundation. They passed away and now the church is building on that foundation. We no longer have people who had their authority. You can have an apostolic gifting, but when you come across people online or on TV who claim to be apostles and to move in the authority of the apostles, they're doing so in an unbiblical way. There's a difference between apostolic gifting and apostolic authority. There's a difference. And so they're trying to find someone who can replace a, a, a Judas with the apostolic authority. What do they do? They cast lots. And the lot fell to Matthias. Now, when you see that, have you ever seen, have you ever read this and wondered to yourself, man, like, does that, can I just roll the dice when a decision gets hard? 
You know, like, I don't know if I should take this job or this job, God, even odd. I'm not sure if I should marry this person or not, even odd. I might roll a second time on that one, just in case. <laughs> we can't do that today. We Why? Why? Why would I advise you not to do that today? Here's an interesting point. They cast lots under the old covenant. You read in the Proverbs and it even talks about the wisdom of casting lots and trying to discern two difficult circumstances through God's sovereignty. But here's something to, to notice. This is the last time God's people cast lots. It doesn't happen again. Why? Because not too long after this, amen, the Holy Spirit comes. And casting lots, rolling a dice, is a far inferior decision-making method than seeking peace from the Holy Spirit that indwells you as a believer. Hands down. Unfortunately for us, especially if you grew up in a traditional, conservative, um, just to be real, mostly white church background, the Holy Spirit tends to be talked about theologically, but not sought out practically. And so we want to be Trinitarian in the way that we do life. And the Holy Spirit was, was going to be given to lead and guide and counsel God's people. And when we come up to a difficult decision, we don't have to roll dice. We get on our knees and we pray. And I think our issue is that we have access to that. And so many of us would just, just rather be able to do this. We just rather have that. Because the time and the attention and seeking God and seeking that peace, man, we just don't want to wait. There's going to come a time in the next few days, weeks, months, in which you're going to be faced with big decisions. You're going to make small decisions today that perhaps matter. So much so that it would be worth you giving God a quick prayer. Lord, what would you have me do? Give me peace about this. Let me just be really clear. Our temptation when we do this, when we go to God, is two options, okay? Is Lord, I really want this. I don't want to do this. So Lord, can you give me peace about the thing I have peace about? Okay? And if 100% of your prayer time with the Holy Spirit leads to you doing what you want to do, you got to check your spirit a little bit. But let's be real. The Holy Spirit was given to us as a gift. And we're going to get into that more because the Holy Spirit's coming soon. Pentecost is coming in the next chapter. But for you and me, we don't got to deal with dice. We don't have to do the whole random flip. Lord, what do you want to say to me? I know some of you have interesting stories about that. We can go to God and trusting that the Holy Spirit applies the redemptive acts of Jesus in your life, changes your heart, will make you holy, will change your relationships, will change your prayer life. The Holy Spirit will do amazing things in your life and turn it probably upside down in the best way possible. Do you go to the Holy Spirit that the Lord has promised you? Do you lean on the Holy Spirit that indwells you if you're a believer? Because you are now a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. Just a review. We want to live like God knows what he's doing, which is what they did. We want to pray like God knows what he's doing. That means waiting time should probably be praying time more often. We want to have hope like God knows what he's doing. 
We want to share the gospel like God knows what he's doing. And finally, we want to be led like God knows what he's doing. Be led. Not by you, not by man, but by God. Because the Lord gave you the Holy Spirit to lead you. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we get to gather here with all the tumult around the world, that we gather here openly, and may we not take it for granted. Lord, I pray that you would convict us, Lord, of what it looks like to coming to you more often. Help us, God, to remove obstacles that make prayer difficult. Help us, Lord, to remove the friction that makes prayer inconvenient, that makes prayer rare. We want to be your people in communion with you, not just on a Sunday morning, but throughout the day, throughout the week. So, Lord, would you provide the conviction and the boldness to step forward? And, Lord, guide us. Holy Spirit, guide us as we take those steps. Ask all those things. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you.